someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, bringing you all the latest cybersecurity news and what you need to know to protect yourself and your family online. Uh, broadcasting from AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast, as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando. Uh, feel free to connect with us online at our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at CybersecRadio, my pers- personal Twitter account at Bambanek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, or by email, johnbambanekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K radio at gmail.com. Have a lot of great content and uh, stuff to discuss this week. Uh, we'll bring on Sean Waterman of cyberscoop.com here uh, in the next segment. But wanted to start about uh, on a couple of other interesting stories from uh, the past week. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, an article in The Sun, uh, a British newspaper, uh, about how Google has been secretly recording you uh, via your cell phone. Um, you know, a little bit of a sensationalist headline. Uh, what happens is uh, if you have your phone set appropriately, and, and the iPhone has this too, but for Google, you know, you just say, okay, Google, and then it, it knows that you're talking to it. You can start giving it audio instructions. And there's lots of different things uh, that have similar uh, behind me as an Amazon Echo that, uh, you know, I use to play music and whatever. I can give it voice instructions uh, as long as I give it the keyword. Uh, And the same thing uh, is true with, with iPhone. What this focuses on is that uh, processing of that phrase, okay, uh, uh, okay, Google, uh, is not as perfect as it ought to be. And sometimes it'll unintentionally start recording and uh, sending that information up. Uh, and every time you give it an instruction, uh, it stores that stuff. You can view, uh, if you use Google services and use that voice recognition feature, you can view your history of it. Uh, so they do tell you how they use it. They do tell you where to find that history. And you can clear that history if you want, uh, if you go to google.com slash history. So Definitely, there are places you can go uh, to find this information, see how it's used, and see what's being recorded about you. So, uh, you know, like I said, the headlines are a little bit sensationalistic, but it reminds people that these devices uh, are recording and may pick up things unintentional. Uh, and, and some of you may remember from a show a couple of months back, uh, there was a case, uh, I forget in what state, where investigators investigating a murder sent a subpoena to Amazon to see if uh, the Amazon Echo that was in the house had clues to what happened before the murder took place. So certainly there's a lot of creation of evidence. And I think you know, it's another example that here in the Internet age, there's an immense amount of data we just create about ourselves going about our daily lives and, and just doing normal things, surfing the web, buying food, whatever. Uh, and that data can be used in a variety of ways. Google says they keep this recording to help make the service better uh, as much as you would think, right? Speaking and getting computers to recognize it, uh, what your speech is, uh, would be easy. It's actually very difficult for computers to do it. So having a good corpus of how people actually talk uh, is is helpful for them to uh, create a service uh, that works. And if you think of just the word there, right, there are three different discrete 
words for there. They are there as in place, there as in these people's thing, right? You know, the three different words all pronounce the same. Uh, so computers have to figure out what you mean and creating what they call natural language processing uh, is a, a growing body of research and effort to try to solve that problem because people are buying more and more voice-activated things. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, be mindful of how the data created about you is being used, it's being stored, it's being protected. Uh, it's a point I've made before. It's a point I made again. There's nobody out there who's going to protect your privacy if you don't do it. So uh, if you use Google services, if you use iPhone or an Amazon Echo, be aware of how those things are uh, keeping your data, uh, how you can view it, and if there's any controls you can place on how it's used uh, because no one's going to necessarily uh, make it easy for you to protect your privacy. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Cybersecurity Today radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, the second story uh, involves Kaspersky Lab, uh, the cybersecurity czar uh, for the Trump administration, saying uh, the U.S. government has some concerns that this uh, Russian-based company who does sell antivirus uh, software here in the United States uh, might be a security concern because, uh, like all antivirus solutions, they also do send telemetry back to try to find uh, new computer viruses and the like. So could theoretically be a means of how uh, Russian intelligence might uh, monitor your activities, and they point to a lot of different things. Um, I've had a lot of questions about this over the past weeks and months. I have some friends who work with Kaspersky. This all started kind of in an odd way where Senator Marco Rubio, uh, in a story about uh, you know whether the Trump administration colluded with the Russians, kind of out of the blue said, hey, uh, you uh, intelligence people, would you use Kaspersky labs? Well, the reality is the intelligence community has never used this vendor. Uh, and, you know, they've, they've done so quietly. No big deal. Uh, why a senator would ask that out of the blue is an interesting question. Uh, but the reality is a lot of this is we've got a very heightened level of concern about Russia. Some of it's unfounded. Some of it is very founded. The government of Russia itself is not particularly friendly to American interests. But some of the data they're pointing to, right, that the founder used to work for their Department of Defense and worked for a CS uh, computer, uh, studied at a computer science school, uh, that uh, there is uh, a certification they get from the FSB uh, because of the cryptography tools they have. Well, that's just they're the regulator. That's who they have to get it from. Uh, there's a lot of kind of misrepresentation, and it all basically comes down to they think uh, because this is a Moscow-based company that they can uh, be compelled into government service. So they're telling, uh, starting to tell businesses they ought to keep that in mind. It's the first time I really remember the government being so active and vigorous of warning people against using a specific vendor. Uh, but Kaspersky, like I said, they sell antivirus uh, tools now. You can go to Best Buy or whatever store uh, you buy computer stuff from, and you'll probably see Kaspersky on the shelf. Uh, I think a lot of things are overblown, and a lot of uh, statements they're making actually greatly complicate my life. You know, Kaspersky, like I said, as any security company does, including myself, you know, does things to proactively find new threats. Uh, if we're going to call that espionage, right, then uh, we're making a very profound statement about the, the nature of security research that has a lot of implications for me. If having conversation with the FSB is enough to say, hey, you're a Russian agent, well, 
you know, I have conversations with the FBI and various members of law enforcement here and around the world. You know, does that mean the next time I go to Russia that I get not be legitimately arrested for espionage? Well, according to America, that's the new standard. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of concerning aspects to this, um, but kind of comes back to uh, – you know, an economic idea of, you know, being more nationalistic in economics. We see this with negotiation of NAFTA, a lot of other things. Uh, the discussion of whether that's good or bad is, is something for another day. But, you know, saying, hey, what, you know, you're a Russian company. We don't want you here. Uh, it kind of goes contrary to the direction of globalization that's been going on for over a decade now. Uh, whether it's intent or by design, eh, I don't know. It is what it is. So uh, you're going to hear a lot of uh, stories uh, and news about that, about Kaspersky Labs. The reality is they do make good antivirus software. It's very effective. Uh, but you make a decision on your own what solution that you want to use. There's lots of antivirus companies out there uh, that sell to consumers, that sell to small and medium business, uh, and you know decide accordingly of how you want to weigh those risks. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to bring on Sean Waterman from cyberscoop.com, our digital partner, talk about some of the stories they've been working on uh, in the past week, some of the things that uh, you may have been hearing about on the news, things you may be curious about. So we'll have him uh, on. And after that, in the next segment, we'll be also taking some of your questions uh, on the air, seeing what you uh, want to know about cybersecurity, how to protect yourself, your credit cards, uh, deal with phishing, uh, and those kind of security threats that are uh, going on out there. So definitely stay tuned. We've got some more great content coming for you here shortly. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek, and we will be right back after this short break. So stay tuned for more. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Patrick O'Neill from our digital partner, cyberscoop.com. Uh, has some great story about uh, malware that's actually targeting North Korea uh, in the light of their current uh, missile program. So thank you for joining us, Patrick. Good to be here, John. So let's dive right into it. Uh, you know, what, what are you seeing about this malware campaign that's uh, going after North Korea? Is it about... Uh, is it about uh, their missile program, just uh, crime generally, or what, uh, you know, what have you found out? Uh, so that's a good question, as North Korea's cyber activity is a lot more varied than I think people realize. But this specifically is uh, dealing, it seems, with the missile program and the recent missile tests, nuclear ICBM tests um, that they've been uh, holding and not just holding, but holding up for the entire world to see as part of rising tensions with the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so the important dates to note are this is a July 3rd ICBM sure. test. And what they've been saying, talking about is ICBMs that can reach the U.S. Um, and so on July 4th is when a new malware campaign, um, well, so it's called Coney. And right. it's recently discovered, but all, it's a long active family of remote access Trojans with essentially the short version means that it can take over the, uh, the computer uh, and give remote access to the attacker. Right. Um, and so July 4th, which is one day uh, after the July 3rd test, obviously, mm -hmm. is when uh, this new campaign is launched. Um, and that's according to research sure. from Silence. The, the other 
part of this uh, little bit that Silence kind of connects the dots to another campaign going on uh, against North Korea. Um, and so there's this hacking group called Dark Hotel. They've been yep. active for a long time. Um, but there was something exceptional in a July campaign, again, following this missile test, in that it looked like it was targeting North Korea. Um, so this comes in the context of a lot of interesting news over the last year in terms of cyber activity, both targeting and coming out of North Korea. Um, we don't know if these two malware campaigns, how they're connected, if they're connected for sure. Um, it looks to, it looks to uh, the researchers like there is some connection in terms of uh, files mm. that were found uh, used in both um, malicious malware droppers that were extremely similar. But as is the case with a lot of these uh, national security issues, a lot of questions remain unanswered. No, no, fair enough. And uh, I, that's kind of the interesting connection. You know, Dark Hotel is, uh, you know, the ones that take over hotel Wi-Fi networks and snoop traffic, correct? That is correct, right? For And they've been active for mm -hmm. 10 years, it seems like. So it's it's always interesting when they're doing something new. And just, you know, people have been saying, so what's the attribution there on Dark Hotel? Um, I think, you know, the obvious guess um, that a lot of people make immediately is NSA. Uh, but I think that the more informed guess starts to look at Seoul and South Korea. Mm -hmm. um, but they still remain guesses. There's no solid attribution there. No, that's, that's certainly interesting. But, you know, that never... Uh, well, I mean, espionage could be used for crime. It could be used for national security reasons. And certainly interesting people, depending on the hotel, uh, are checking in, doing things online. And, uh, you know, there's there's information that could be gathered there. Absolutely. I mean, hotels are, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, you know, they're magnets for important people with important information. And you just talked about, you know, espionage being used for crime and intelligence. Well, North Korea is the poster child for using uh, cyber espionage for crime and for making money. You know, or uh, last year it was that they mm -hmm. stole almost $90 million uh, with a pretty unprecedented hacking campaign with swift banking. So, uh, yeah, North Korea exemplifies that point. No, so it's kind of ironic. They're now kind of on the business end of somebody who's who's going both ways with it. But uh, yeah, no, that yeah, it's last year. At least it was attributed to them, you know, stealing ninety million dollars from the central bank of Bangladesh. I think if it was correctly, so uh, the largest digital bank heist in history, I believe, uh, in terms yeah, of single uh, dollar amounts. Right, not not stealing a bunch like a thousand dollars from a million people, but uh, just basically raiding a country's bank account. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the largest, but the uh, the sad part is that their ambitions were much uh, greater. They were almost stole a billion dollars if it wasn't for a few rudimentary errors. So mm -hmm. uh, they'll they'll expect them to keep going on. And certainly financial institutions around the world are looking at Pyongyang and expecting more action out of that direction. No, no, definitely. I know a lot of people were very concerned about the Swift Bank attacks that were stopped, in essence, because of small typos. So I think those just two characters that were just transliterated. Yep. Uh, so something kind of aired out, and somebody took a look and said, uh, holy crap, we got a problem here. <laughs> a big one. Yeah, a billion-dollar problem. Yeah, so yeah, small typos, you know, a, a small typo saved almost a billion dollars. But, but definitely interesting time so uh kind of going back to this report right you know the that uh 
the July campaign, right, the one that was targeting North Korea, uh, seemed to be targeting political figures instead of business uh, and doing kind of some social engineering there, going after, uh, in essence, politicians uh, in North Korea uh, insofar as, uh, well, there's political leaders everywhere, I suppose, just no matter what your regime form is. But, uh, you know, I, I found that one particularly interesting. That's right. And the, the other interesting part, I would say, is, you know, you said in North Korea, and I think also, uh, unless I'm mistaken, it's also outside of North Korea. And mm -hmm. one of the interesting reactions to this uh, report, you know, there, there's a public perception of North Korea as kind of this disconnected backwater. Um, and it's understandable why that's the perception, but a lot of that is just not true. They've been investing a lot of money in uh being connected there you know it's still a despotic regime it's still a brutal regime but they're connected now both in the country and outside of the country um they have operatives um mm -hmm. and and officials outside of the country that are using the internet uh, to advance their mission so it makes sense to target them abroad because that's where the north koreans are working from they're doing a lot of work from abroad well yeah and they kind of have to for a variety of reasons even their uh even their That's hacking right. groups are, you know, are operating out of hotels in, in China and Vietnam. Uh, I, I don't know much, if any. I'm, I'm sure there are, I guess, are people operating within North Korea, but uh, the groups we hear about uh, are usually not actually in North Korea. They're just acting uh, at the direction of North Korea from whatever hotel they happen to be staying at overseas. Yes, absolutely. I, I think it's fair to say that the lion's share of their cyber activity takes place um, around uh, chiefly East Asia, as you said, China, Vietnam, uh, Thailand is a big uh, hot point um, mm -hmm. because of historic relations there, um, which complicates both the politics of it, but it also complicates the cybersecurity side of it, right? Uh, makes attribution that much that much more interesting um but it's it's pretty well established at this point so there's you know there's that usual variable in question about attribution but this, this point about them operating abroad is is pretty widely accepted no definitely so yeah there's some very interesting information uh if you're interested in in, in seeing this and uh, other great stories uh go ahead and go to cyberscoop.com uh and uh go ahead and check out what they've got going on so thank you for joining us this week patrick Thank you, as always. All right. Stay tuned. We're going to be taking a short break right here, but we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamba. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. Got a question on cybersecurity? I got a question! Ask Bambanek. Really? You sure about that? And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, going to talk about our social media feature here where we take questions from you, what you want to know about cybersecurity and how to protect yourself, your family, and your loved ones. Uh, if you want to ask us questions, you can connect with us on Facebook at CyberSec Radio. Uh, on Twitter as well, or email us at Radio at gmail.com. 
J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. The first question, I've been victimized by credit card skimmers multiple times in the past year. Is there a foolproof way to prevent it from happening in the future? So, um what skimmers are uh, for credit card readers, particularly things like ATMs, uh, occasionally gas pumps, uh, things you just kind of put in your credit card and not. They, they put in a small device in there that will capture uh, the magnetic strip on your card. They may have an overlay of a, of a pin so they can capture your pin so they can duplicate your card and steal your money. So uh, very, uh, I shouldn't say very common, but it's a, it's a popular technique to clone ATM cards and steal money out of bank accounts. Uh, but it can be useful for credit cards also. Uh, the foolproof way, uh, I mean, if you go into an ATM or a gas pump, you can always kind of give the little assembly a little tug, see if there's anything loose in there. The devices are getting better and better. Uh, some people compromise the device itself. There's not really much you can do in that case. But, you know, look for things that are suspicious, right? A reader that's, that's kind of loose. Uh, things are not firmly in place the way they ought to be. Uh, and, you know, just be willing to go someplace else, report it to a gas station attendant or a bank or whoever so that they can be uh, somebody who takes a look at it. Uh, so, uh, you know, basically just kind of be aware, look for things that don't look quite right. Now, the good news is for most of this, certainly for credit card fraud, but for uh, uh, bank uh, banking transactions, debit cards, for these kind of things, they will often refund your money and really make it no cost to you. There may be a little bit of hassle. you got to have a phone call or whatever to deal with it. Uh, but usually if there's a skimmer involved, you're not the only victim, and the bank you're using knows that. So they should theoretically make you whole. It's really on uh, the ATM manufacturers and the device uh, manufacturers to make their uh, equipment more tamper-evident uh, and have mechanisms to uh, protect you uh, against them. But it's always important to look at your credit card statements, your bank statements when they come out once a month. Look for those unknown transactions because if you go back, hey, it's six months later, I didn't, I didn't withdraw $200, uh, you're less likely to get your money back. But if you say, hey, I just got my bill, skimming at this, uh, this transaction doesn't make a lot of sense. I wasn't there. Usually you can call them, get some information. You know, you can, you can ask where the transaction physically took place. It'll often be someplace else in the country. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of things to easily verify that that wasn't you. Uh, you do it quickly. There's kind of no harm to you. No, you don't lose your money. That's the important thing. It may take a phone call or two, but usually it's pretty lightweight these days. So always take a look at your statements. Our next question here on our uh, social media questions feature. My children, one in eighth grade, one in high school, asking for Facebook and Instagram accounts. Should I allow them? How can I keep them safe? Um, uh, the question of whether you allow them is is, is ultimately, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know if there's a textbook answer for that. Uh, eventually, your kids are going to be adults uh, and uh, go out into the world uh, and use these, these features. Often kids will use them anyway, may not ask. Uh, it's probably better to uh, have them use it, have them talk to you about it, and, and tell them some of the things that they'll face uh, in an age-appropriate way. When you're talking about eighth grade and high school, uh, you know, you can talk about, hey, you know what, 
there are people online who like luring, uh, you know, potential victims somewhere uh, where they can be taken advantage of. You can have those kind of conversations because that does happen uh, in high school. Talk about uh, sexting and cyberbullying and some of these things that are going on. Uh, I think the most important thing is making sure you, you have an open uh, conversation with them um, and they're feeling comfortable talking to you. Uh, let them know that, hey, you can bring things to me if you have questions, if something is inappropriate or whatever, uh, because ultimately, uh, you know, I can give you a lot of tools and I'll give you a quick list of things to kind of monitor activity. Uh, but kids are good at evading that. Really having that open conversation, being involved in the lives is really helpful. I know many parents uh, say, if you want a Facebook account, I need the password as well, so you can review messages and that kind of thing, seeing, seeing how they're using it. Uh, I think having a degree of visibility into what they're doing, uh, but certainly talking to them about the threats. And, and one of the biggest things to keep in mind uh, that children often don't really understand is that it's really easy to impersonate somebody else online. I can go to Facebook on any account uh, of anybody in the world, download that profile picture, make it my own profile picture, create a, create a new profile with that profile picture and say, I'm that person. Right. And people do that. Uh, there's a, a lot of deception that takes place out there for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, it's not just cyber criminals trying to get your credit card. It could be uh, trying to get pictures of, of your children uh, in some varying straits of undress. Uh, there's a lot of extortion out there, which can, is the importance of you know, having your kids have an open relationship that uh, or the ability to have an open conversation. Right. If you've got a daughter who gets a text message saying, hey, I've got pictures that. Uh, uh, that you shared with your boyfriend. If you don't give me more, then I'm going to uh, publish this to your friends. Having them feel f that they can come to you, come to somebody to get help, because that is really important, because those people can be prosecuted. They're almost always in the United States. They're almost always in the same physical proximity of somebody. There's been some very high-profile arrests of people who engage in that behavior, but that can't happen uh, unless some adults in law enforcement are involved. Uh, and the only way we stop that problem is really pointing the hammer down on those people. So uh, just be aware of what they're posting uh, and, and make sure that they understand that what they post online can be shared by others. Even if they have a private profile, they have no idea where the information goes once they post it to Facebook or Instagram. Uh, and these things have a tendency of following them for a good long time. So uh, certainly talk to them about all those risks, how they wish to portray themselves in public. There's this idea on the Internet you can be anonymous and do whatever you want. The Internet is not nearly as anonymous as people think there is. Uh, that it is. So, uh, and the last thing, I would uh, go with them uh, and show them stopthinkconnect.org. Uh, it's an anti-phishing website uh, that uh, helps do some security awareness, keep people uh, aware of some of the threats that are out there, some of the things that can happen, uh, and, and build some security awareness in them. So definitely check out stopthinkconnect.org. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamanek. Last question, I've fallen for multiple email phishing scams. How can I protect myself? Uh, first, you know, if you're uh, using email, make sure you've got good spam filtering. If you're using uh, commercial email like Gmail, that's already built in. But whenever there's a link or request for information, right, uh, particularly clickable links, you know, right-click that, see where the URL points to. If something says, hey, this is a PayPal reset fish, right, right-click that and see if it actually goes to PayPal.com or if it goes to Jimmy's going to steal your money.ru. 
all of these phishing scams are really, it's just deception. Look for that evidence of deception and pay a, a little bit of attention of, of how things are, right? If, if the name doesn't match the email address, uh, hey, it's a warning sign. If somebody says, hey, I need your credit card number, uh, the more sensitive the information, the less likely email is the medium that you should be using for it, right? Always be wary when people are asking financial information, things of that sort. Uh, and don't send that stuff over unencrypted email. Email is really a bad medium for it. Um, if you have any questions, always feel free to pick up the phone and ask somebody. Uh, if, if you know your bank sends you an email, says, "Hey, uh, I got this email from from you guys talking about my mortgage. Is this legit?" The more than happy to answer that question for you, uh, than have to deal with some big fraud event on the back end. So, uh, I said, pay attention to those details. Look for those subtle signs of deception. There's almost always some there, mismatches between name and email address. Uh, you know, if you don't talk to anybody overseas looking for characteristics of non-native English speakers or people using British English like O-U-R instead of O-R at the end of words, uh, will give you some good hints. So a lot of good questions. If you have more, feel free to send them in. But we're going to take a quick break and come back with Chris Ensley, uh, the CEO of Dunbar Security Solutions. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Chris Enzi. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Dunbar Security Solutions uh, and co-chair of the Governor's Workforce Development Board uh, Cybersecurity Tax Force. Uh, thank you for joining us, Chris. Oh, thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk, uh, you know, future of cybersecurity and kind of our segue to starting this conversation is uh, something, an article out of uh, uh, CBS this past week. Uh, the White House cybersecurity czar warning about uh, a security company, Kaspersky Lab, uh, and the threat that they allege uh, is proposed or uh, posed by them. Uh, and uh, also mentioning uh, kind of the uh, lack of cybersecurity experts needed to defend the country against uh, some of these threats that we keep seeing in the news. So uh, kind of what are your thoughts uh, for what the cybersecurity czar is, is saying? Is, uh, is the threat of this company real or imagined? And uh, what can we do about uh, our uh, security, uh, security worker uh, shortage? Well, John, I, I think in general the entire issue with Kaspersky Lab is something of a head-scratcher. If you look at the supply chain that we work in in any industry, it goes global. It's in every country whether it's China, whether it's other uh, friendly countries, whether it's even Russia. I think this Russian issue with the uh, connections and ties to the leadership at Kaspersky is being brought up today for probably a lot of political reasons. Uh, I think there is always a potential risk anytime you have such a widely adopted software that's in the hands of every Everyone, uh, you know, I think they said they had like 400 million users or something to that effect. I, I think that's always a, an eye-opener when you start to think of what's the most common denominator that could be uh, used as ac an access point to many different types of organizations. And so I think the, the FBI is looking at it 
really pragmatically at this point saying if relations with a certain country are going a bad direction, then we need to take some sort of action or make a statement on that fact. But I think you could take that context forward into multitudes of different areas where we have technology that's in the fabric of everything we do. I think it came up similarly several years back with Huawei with uh, various different networking gear. So, I mean, this is very similar to that, but it's just another manifestation of it that's being obviously picked up very broadly by news media just because of the current temperature between these two uh, states. And uh, I think uh, in terms of that workforce shortage that he discussed, that's an entirely other different topic that is uh, a real factor when we start thinking about cybersecurity and advancement of technology in the defense of, sec- of, of cyber attacks in the United States. So it's, it's a big area I focus on uh, as we, we try to run our business, but also the work I do outside of uh, my main organization with the state of Maryland to try to help them advance training programs and other ways to advance the workforce here. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I think those are all definitely good points. I, you know, I teach at a university on top of my day job and this, right, uh, primarily, right, to, to develop uh, some talent or at least take people who are graduating from CS programs and hopefully teach them something about security uh, as they go into the industry so they can at least be helpful if they don't go into working in security uh, and just IT generally, uh, hopefully just making more secure decisions to uh, have less problems out there. So I certainly think... Um, you know, there's there's benefit in that. Um, you know, so, so what else? Do, I mean, do, do you think we could do? I mean, there's a lot of talk about putting cybersecurity in K-12 schools and uh, day of coding and and uh, those kind of programs. I mean, do you think those have a role in what we should be doing uh, even before college? Well, I think cybersecurity is a topic that has a really broad set of subtopics in it. There's a lot of different coverage when you start using that term. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people in our own industry are like, they don't even like the term cybersecurity. So that gets in a whole nother set of you know, personalities, opinions there. But I'll digress and then say that I think what we need to really focus on goes all the way down to the, the earliest parts of setting the right tone for people that are going to get interested in technology and become uh, curious about how these gadgets that they have every day work and honestly how accessible they are to people that want to use them in creative ways. Sometimes those are evil creative ways. Sometimes those are really good creative ways. But that said, I think you got you to set that spark inside of people early. I, I know I got it when I was uh, sitting next to my grandfather and he had a early Zenith computer, AD88, that we used to play around with and he'd teach me different ways to, to use it. And, and honestly, that's the thing that got me to where I am today. It's that early stage spark that gets set, that little fire that gets set inside of somebody. And to carry that out to a much broader audience, the people that may not have access like I did to technology at a young age, I think that's really what makes the most difference. So if we can start early, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's going to bring forth a much broader workforce in 10, 15 years, whatever that is. But we have to do it at all levels, right? No, no, I think that that's certainly true. And I think one of the interesting things I've noticed in the past couple of years is that a lot of conferences, security conferences, like all other industries and trades, you know, we have our own conferences and and many will include little subtracts so that people can bring their kids. 
mm-hmm. and play with robotics or any number of things or you know teacher kid lock picking uh i know there's a conference i'm going to in des moines uh, in early september corncon that uh, has a track called hack for kids uh for uh you know for basically people like me going to conferences where you know i've got something to to go do with my children you know uh, obviously age appropriate but you know in in the ballpark of what we do absolutely that's that's really cool to hear and like the the types of things that can get that type of activity going and share the ideas share the knowledge that you've gained with the younger generation and bring that forward i think those are all really critical things we have in uh, the dc area dc baltimore area where i live i I think a few different examples of that but unfortunately probably not enough Uh, i would say that there's this definitely a focus on the industry here it's a pretty hot area for cybersecurity, especially Mm -hmm. with the DOD and the, the intel agencies here locally, and I think we we get oftenly often myopically focused on on them because there's such a huge vacuum of, of of need in terms of talent coming in the door, going to those agencies. Um, a lot of the technology being innovated around that sphere. So maybe some of the stuff it gets forgotten. It, it does kind of uh, take a backseat to uh, the the bigger bigger initiatives going on, and I, I think. The, the school systems are, are starting to wake up. Obviously, that's going to take some help from the state and you know, other agencies in the federal mm-hmm. uh, sense to help us grow this thing. No, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, like I said, there's the start of things uh, kind of in the K-12 system. And if nothing else, uh, certainly there's Internet safety and that kind of thing, which is, oh, yeah. you know, we're all going to be on the Internet, or at least the younger generation is. And uh, even if people aren't going into the security field, right, they need to know how to protect themselves and keep themselves safe online. Yeah, I mean, I even advocated in in other discussions I've had over the years, really having, uh, you know, like just you you go to college and and they start talking to you about, you know, campus safety and things like that, having a cybersecurity uh, kickstart, you know, getting to understand what your risks are so that you don't have a bunch of college kids that end up with, like, credit problems and other things as they graduate uh, beyond the debts that they're going into obviously but yeah. the the other piece to this is you know you made the, the point earlier about um about the this kaspersky thing and about like how we've got you know folks coming out and saying there's a shortage of of cybersecurity experts i i think we have to just generally bring the population up a notch in terms of their awareness and I think that can help because, you know, you've got kids and young young kids in school that are, are getting some exposure to this stuff, and they're going to bring it home. Uh, so the net effect of this with, you know, the kid learning, hey, I need to – here's my, my password strategy and take, teaching that to their parents or, you know, here's how I'm going to deal with uh, updates on my computer because we're doing that as part of our computer club at, at, at junior high. These are things that just have a, a effect on everybody around them. No, I think that's definitely true. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on. You've been listening to Chris Enzi, uh, the COO of Dunbar Security Solutions, co-chair of the Government Workforce Development Board. So thank you again for your time, Chris. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So coming up to the end of our show here, a lot of great content. Heard from Sean Waterman of CyberScoop. Again, Chris Enzi of CEO of Dunbar Security Solutions. Uh, and certainly, uh, we'll kind of go back to the cybersecurity training shortage. Uh, and and uh, it's a really great industry to get involved in.
So, uh, end of our show, if you want to catch the podcast of this or any extra content we uh, have online, just go to your favorite podcasting software and search Cybersecurity uh, Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. You can connect with us online on the web, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, on Facebook and Twitter at Cybersec Radio, uh, and by email, Radio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. So, Stay tuned for next week. We'll have more great cybersecurity news, what you need to know to protect you, yourself, and your family. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You've been listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamba. I guess that is.